Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 94, Hangry. I know for like the past month, I've gotten sucked into the sequence of events of the Russian Civil War, which to be fair, is very important for understanding both the scope of the war and the intense pressures that the Bolsheviks faced. But now that I've got most of the big battles squared away and hopefully given you an instructive look at the conflict's losers and their innumerable failings, we need to double back and take a look at the winners. As you might have gathered based on how the war went for its first two critical years, the Bolsheviks were stuck in a reactive mode that saw them shift their priorities from disaster to disaster as they came up. By virtue of commanding the central core of European Russia, they possessed the great prizes of the empire, the big industrial cities, most of the farms, and the essential population bases that went along with all that. That meant for the whites to succeed in their counter-revolution, they need to take those prizes off the hands of the Bolsheviks. And by virtue of their central location, the Bolshevik heartlands would be vulnerable to attack from all directions, which is pretty much exactly what happened. In order to counter the constant assaults from all corners over those first two years, the Red Army was forced to grow at a spectacular rate. By the end of 1918, the Red Army was sitting at 700,000 men. This was the army that had beaten down the Komuch and survived the Don Cossacks' assaults on Tsaritsyn, but before the terrible shocks of Kolchak's spring 1919 offensive or Denikin's lunge towards Moscow later in the year. But despite the repeated disasters and pressure coming from all sides, not only did the Bolshevik state survive, it solidified its control to the point where the Red Army by early 1920, where I left off last week, was at a strength of around 3 million soldiers. Despite all the gloom and desperation of 1919, red power in Russia was able to grow and expand to the point where there wasn't a faction in the country that could possibly stand against it. How was it able to do this while their counterpart white regimes shook themselves apart? Well, the Bolsheviks had a better understanding of the masses, obviously, since they actually engaged with them while the whites steadfastly declined to. And while the Bolsheviks never enjoyed overwhelming popular support, their willingness to embrace change gave them a legitimacy the whites never gained. When the going got tough for the Red Army, they mobilized 100,000 fresh troops. When the whites faced adversity, they fell apart. Now, this isn't to say that the Reds were carried purely by ideals and effective PR in the face of adversity, although they definitely had that and it helped. They also had a willingness to play rough and make the hard decisions in order to keep going. A common characteristic of many white politicians was their obsession with restoring old norms in Russia before even making a functioning government. This bogged down leaders in debates about whether the Constituent Assembly was to be revived, or how it was supposed to be revived, or if the provisional government was the point to be reset back to, or if they should go even further backwards. It was all a waste of time as those things were gone and hardly represented a vision the populace could engage with. The political underpinnings of the white regimes were therefore weak in the areas they occupied, and they were effectively military governments. The Bolsheviks, on the other hand, lacked such sentimentality and pursued their war effort with a single-minded ruthlessness that would prove to be indicative of their later fighting spirit and really should have been a lesson to those who would want to challenge the new state in the future. That all being said, Lenin and his guys had no idea that they held most of the cards and were in all likelihood going to win the whole thing. Remember that a lot of these guys were entertaining notions of abandoning much of the country to German occupation and fighting a guerrilla war in early 1918. 
they had no idea what the future held for them. When Lenin devoted the whole of the nation's economy towards supporting the war effort and called up a mass army, those were not decisions made from an iron will to succeed. They were the panic moves of a guy who had been backed into a corner. In fact, the sudden turn towards a mass army might have done more harm than good. As I mentioned in episode 89, the old Tsarist supply depots could easily support an army of under a million men. When your army was growing towards 3 million or even 5 million by the end of 1920, logistical problems were inevitable. And given the state of the economy, battered by both war and isolation from the rest of the world, the cost of maintaining such a force imposed a huge burden on the country. And while the urban proletariat proved to be a ready source of manpower for the army, after all, with many factories shutting down due to input disruptions, there were a lot of unemployed men, the villages were another story entirely. Remember the peasant communes? I haven't talked about them in a while, but they didn't magically go away. As old Russia receded, they jumped into the vacuum in the countryside, seizing country estates and driving the gentry out, oftentimes through violence or intimidation. You know, pitchforks and torches. Except also guns, knives, and whatever else was laying around. By mid-1918, when the Civil War was heating up, they kinda already had what they wanted and didn't see a point in fighting. Many communes argue that the country had been a war since 1914 and had depended on peasants to fight the battles, which, to be fair, was correct. The peasantry had borne the brunt of the nation's martial disasters. This disconnect between the rural base and the new leadership was going to exacerbate the already in-motion disaster that was the true hallmark of the Russian Civil War. Famine. I've already talked about the hunger of the marching armies and how they requisitioned everything they could locally as they outran their own supply lines. Or those supply lines simply ran dry and didn't have anything for them. I have also in the past talked about the severe dislocations in transportation that meant food from one place couldn't be shipped to where it was needed. And also the many cases where peasants simply didn't feel like their product would earn them enough at that exact moment and deciding to keep their grain in storage in expectation that prices would go up later. Well, all of that got much worse going into 1918, and it didn't help that for most of the year the western marches of the country were cut off and the Germans were shipping every bit of grain they can get their hands on back home. And that included what grain they could buy up in zones outside their area of occupation. Remember the example of offering the Don Cossacks weapons and the Georgians protection in exchange for grain. And while it wasn't a make or break amount coming out of those latter two areas, it did show that precious food wasn't finding its way to the domestic markets first. And it showed in the cities. And the most extreme example of urban collapse, by 1920, the city of Petrograd, which had had a population of 2.4 million, had been reduced to 720,000. Imagine for a moment your hometown reduced to less than a third of its population. The basic niceties you probably rely on would come to a shrieking halt. Buildings fell into disrepair, the streets were covered in garbage and worse as sanitation failed, and the people who remained were unnaturally thin and hollowed out looking due to malnutrition. It was as if they were living through an apocalypse. Anything made of wood, be it trees, housing, or fencing, was stripped and used for firewood. Urban animals were hunted to extinction as sources for calories. Cholera, typhus, and yes, the great influenza outbreak all ravaged a population weakened by starvation. The story was similar in Moscow, where they saw their population fall by half. And while the population collapses might not have been so huge elsewhere, 
the broad strokes were taking place all over the country in both red and white areas. A mitigating factor to maybe temper this frenzied picture I'm painting were that a lot of people withdrew to the countryside, especially those who had recently come from there look looking for urban work. So while, yeah, the population declines in places like Petrograd and Moscow were eye-popping, a lot of it was simply people bailing out of a bad situation. And one overtly pro-Bolshevik defense here that I'll drop is that the city governments made actual efforts at organizing famine relief, offering public cafeterias to the hungry. The efforts were wholly insufficient, uh, and never provided sufficient calories on their own to keep people alive. And yeah, the food itself sucked, but it did help keep people alive. And the cities falling into disrepair wasn't just a straight line of events, but really more of a feedback loop. As transportation became focused on other priorities, fewer resources like coal and iron were shipped to the urban areas. The factories that used these inputs no longer got them, meaning they couldn't make anything, and so didn't have a way to actually, you know, make money. No more work meant layoffs, which meant a lot of people who didn't have the money to buy food, nor were they robust consumers for manufactured goods, thus making the cities an ever more unattractive destination for selling your stuff if it could even get through the transportation problems. By 1920, gross national income was down 60% from before the revolution, mostly on account of cities and industry collapsing. Industrial output was down to a fifth of its level in 1913. Consumer goods and coal production sat at a quarter of its old output. Oh, and you know how during the past Civil War episodes how much traveling was done by train to move hundreds of thousands of men from one point to another? or how army advances on both sides were usually along rail lines? Well, both the rails and the locomotives themselves suffered from attrition in the Civil War years that couldn't be made good upon, mostly due to the collapse in industrial production, which itself was caused by the dislocations in that very same transportation system. All of which was a huge problem, as Lenin's calculus was that Russia in 1917 was industrialized just enough to get a proletarian revolution going. With that meager industrial base fast slipping away, he was going to be stuck with a pre-industrial economy. And it wasn't like the factories that were shutting down remained in stasis waiting to be opened back up either. The abandoned machinery wasn't upkept and it was often sold for scrap. Even in factories that remained in operation, the lack of replacement machines and spare parts meant that output was badly curtailed. Which again, only made a bad situation worse. The cherry on top of all this was a devastating Entente blockade. Always remember that as of early 1918 until the very end of World War I in November, that the Entente believed the Bolsheviks to be German agents, in cooperation with Berlin against their interests. And they treated the Bolsheviks as such, preventing goods from reaching their ports or crossing their borders. And it wasn't just the German agent angle in play either. The French especially had for years been that big creditor to the Tsar and expected those debts to be made good on regardless of government. The whites were willing to at least pay lip service to that demand, but the Bolsheviks sure as hell weren't. They flatly denied repayment of any debt of the old government to any foreign nation, considering the slate wiped clean. And if there was something that could, without fail, provoke the ire of imperialists who were themselves badly indebted, it was messing with their money. Red Russia was going to be almost totally on its own. Which brings us finally, on the eighth episode of covering the Civil War, to war communism. 
Depending on your point of view, the term could either sound impressive or ominous, and you'd be justified for feeling either way about both. And given the propensity for the Communist Party for central planning, you'd think it'd be something that had been in the works for some time already. Well, it wasn't. War communism is a term that was applied in hindsight to a series of ad hoc centralizing measures that were a result of the Bolsheviks making things up as they went along. It was only afterwards, when the dust settled, they asked themselves what they had done, and they just looked around and muttered, eh, war communism. In a nutshell, it was effectively the collection of policies that the new state employed to assert control over the crumbling economy, to put it to work in order to win the war, and to pursue every means in which to make sure the specter of mass famine was combated. The successes of these policies left something to be desired, and their failures, which were numerous, led to the hardened Bolsheviks eventually pulling an ideological 180 back towards a more moderate socialism. That last part I'll get to a little bit later down the road, but it'll be the big topic of the Soviet Union during the 1920s. Now, when I last talked about the Bolsheviks' domestic governance many an episode ago, I spoke about how from the start of the revolution, they were already assuming more and more control over the economy, such as the management of factories, and that the bureaucracy was steadily expanding as well. Part of the reason for this was the natural instinct on the part of the centralizing Bolsheviks. The other was that the capitalists, who would have otherwise run the country's enterprises on behalf of the new government, didn't want any part of it and moved out. But the part of the economy that remained out of the Bolsheviks' direct grasp, and the one that was the most pressing, was the food supply. The Bolsheviks had initially hoped that their control over the manufacture of consumer goods would give them something to barter with the peasants for. They could take luxury goods, or at least luxury goods by the standards of the day, like sugar or nice fabrics, and take them directly to the countryside, and convince those peasants to part with those sweet, sweet foodstuffs. The collapse in the industrial sector threw a big wrench into this plan, though, and even when consumer goods were on hand to barter for, the peasants preferred to hang on to their produce. Part of that was because the peasants knew full well the country was entering a period of chaos, and wanted to keep food on hand for themselves. That, or the peasants opted to use their grain to make something they could themselves trade for consumer goods more on their terms. Booze. Fun number fact I came across. In the first half of 1918, 216,700 tons of grain were successfully requisitioned in Siberia by the cities. 451,000 tons of grain, more than double, was converted to moonshine in the same region. Instead of providing sustenance, the peasants were turning towards the alcohol market. Back in the Russian core, the Bolsheviks very quickly realized the peasantry was not going to cooperate and turn towards doing things the hard way. On May 14, 1918, they declared a food dictatorship and decreed that any amount of grain produced over a certain amount was liable to be confiscated. This was the grain monopoly that was the true start of war communism. Anybody trying to hide these surpluses faced a year of jail time and being branded an enemy of the people. Which, taking a look at the cities and how things were going there, uh, yeah, I, I can see where that idea could come from. To enforce this, the Bolsheviks put together a team that could be depended on to follow through, which were the hungry workers themselves. An army of some 80,000 workers went out into the provinces to find that excess grain and get it into the cities. Theoretically, the peasants who cooperated were due to receive some compensation, officially a quarter of the value of what was confiscated, but the resources of the government were slim and the system not very effectual. 
and the peasants weren't really interested in just giving up the grain quietly anyway. The workers oftentimes found themselves in for a fight immediately upon entering the countryside, and some 7,300 of these 80,000 workers were killed. Nor was the grain collected handled appropriately. Of the million-some tons of grain collected in 1918, much of it rotted, sitting around waiting for a transportation network that wasn't geared to ship the excess. A different tact was attempted in the second half of 1918 with the formation of the Combetti. Combetti were supposed to be committees of poor peasants that would be self-organizing and would combat the perceived excesses of the rich peasants, or the kulaks as they were referred to. More on them later. It was the belief of the Bolshevik leadership that the real problem with the larger and more successful peasants were the ones really hoarding the grain, and the best way to get at it was through other peasants. The Combetti would organize and proactively identify the hoarders. This was all in keeping with the Bolshevik idea of the peasantry, which divided peasants into the poor who had virtually nothing, the middle who had land and did pretty well but largely just operated their own land, and the rich peasants who had big enough holdings they had to hire labor and also engaged in private enterprise. A big problem with this way of thinking was that the peasants didn't identify themselves using the same system. They still thought in terms of the commune, and while there were certainly more and less respectable members, they were all part of the same community. What wound up happening was that the members of the Combetti were mostly the opportunistic coming in from outside the commune that they were supposed to be a committee for. In fact, in one study in the Tambov province, it was determined that a third of the members didn't even engage in farming. The Combetti were used mostly as vehicles to siphon resources from the local peasantry. In addition to helping locate grain surpluses, the members also confiscated property, arrested peasants they wanted out of the way, and generally shook down the community at large. Suffice to say, this effort wasn't well received by actual peasants, and very quickly, even the Bolshevik leadership were backpedaling on the whole idea. Their second thoughts were also due to the accelerating establishment of these groups. The idea was put into action in June 1918, and by December 2nd, when it ended, there were over 130,000 such groups, all acting as their own little party cells in the countryside. It was obviously going to be a source of instability, and Lenin put a stop to it. The Bolsheviks' food commissariat took a new course after abandoning the Combetti idea, because of course the requisitions had to continue. Uh, if anything, conditions were just getting worse going into 1919. And having a bit to think about it, the new idea was to take into account just how much grain the country needed and then assign each province a quota of surpluses to be produced, which would then be collected by the state. So, still doing basically the same thing, just now the requirements were out in the open, as opposed to roaming bands taking what they could or social climbing committees snitching on farmers. Unfortunately, the requirements turned out to be unreasonable. Farming output in the first place had been halved since the start of World War I on account of labor shortages and the market being so dislocated that peasants simply stopped growing so much food on account of their not really being a means to actually get it to the market. Now the confiscation squads were shaking down in an orderly manner farmers who didn't have as much to offer as the literal bean counters in Moscow thought they did. Not that this made any difference to the collectors, as they had their quotas that they were expected to meet as well. Still, only 40% of the expected grain was collected in 1919, although the overall amounts got better in 1920 and 21, as harvests in first Siberia, then southern Russia and Ukraine were put back at the disposal of the larger country. 
the effects of the quota system were depressing and kind of an early sign of what would eventually come in the 30s. The collectors oftentimes took more grain than expected if possible so as to secure for themselves a supply of food and also something to barter with back in the cities. Peasants either physically resisted or simply farmed less land, which either way was very bad for future harvests and had a hell of a knock-on effect for the future of Soviet agriculture. What had once been a breadbasket economy of ample food exports now sunk into a morass as food production was halved and the areas cultivated fell by 15 to 25 percent versus their pre-World War I marks. The sudden change in how food was handled in the country had the inadvertent effect of creating a new occupation of food speculator, which was really just a polite way of saying food smuggler. These guys would either buy grain off peasants and then take it to towns to sell outside the state's own distribution system, or they'd be peasants who had the guts to do that themselves. Either way, it was a risky line of work. Individuals were only permitted to carry with them so much in the way of goods, or they'd be outed as flouting government laws on private operations. Enough grain had to be collected to make the operation worthwhile, and then you'd have to get it into a town and into the hands of a buyer, all without alerting your friendly neighborhood Cheka agent who you could be sure would be taking a dim view on operating in the black market. And it was taken very seriously, to the point where people just looking at trying to move their goods honestly got swept up by the Cheka. But despite the hostility of the government and the efforts of the secret police, there was still a parallel economy to the official one. You can call it a black market and it basically worked the same way, but it was such a large presence in everyone's lives that a term usually reserved for underground operations really doesn't do it justice. And local Bolshevik authorities would sometimes opt for a hands-off approach, as their communities might have depended on such activity. It's been estimated that half the urban food supply came from these unofficial channels, and virtually everyone in the cities at one point or another turned towards some kind of side hustle in order to get by. Even committed Bolsheviks would flout their party's laws for the sake of securing some food for their families. One thing that the Bolsheviks pointedly did not attempt to do during the years of war communism was engage with peasant co-ops, which presented an organic organization of rural workers. These groups, though, were usually dominated by left SRs, which after their little stunt in launching a half-coup via their positions in the Cheka's leadership during the summer of 1918, they were seen with real suspicion by the Bolsheviks. To them, the co-ops attracted attention only insofar as the regime desired to purge the left SR element. They'd come back around on the idea during the new economic policy years of the post-Civil War era, but for now, anything not in the direct hands of the regime was suspect. Another change in the countryside with the collapse of the cities was the re-emergence of the local artisan. Factory production had rendered small-scale manufacturing uneconomical, but when the factories went away, the small-scale operations popped back up nearly instantly. Part of that was because a lot of city workers were fleeing to the country, and since the whole reason they left was because there wasn't enough land to hack it as a farmer, many opted to fill these new, but also very old, niches. That was assuming that the former urbanite had some skill to apply in doing that. If they didn't, and if they didn't have familial or communal relations to help them transition back to peasant life, they were kind of screwed. The city dweller who made for the country without some kind of inn was forced to hire themselves out as laborers. And there were already enough laborers out in the countryside, so that meant starving families wandering the roads after a harvest, hoping that something might have fallen off the wagon. The whole experience of those years was arduous in ways I really can't convey in words. 
It was a day-in, day-out experience with no end in sight. It was enduring your days and nights with the cravings of hunger in your belly, and even when you got a little to last another day, it would just be the same when you woke up on the next. You suffered it in the winters and endured it through the diseases that ravaged your community. And for many, the experience was truncated by the sweet release of death. But the number that did that was fewer than might be imagined given the scale of the suffering, because it turns out human beings could endure a whole lot, which was good because it wasn't over yet. A key reason such comprehensive revolutions like the Bolsheviks were attempting don't get carried out too often was because there was the risk of transitional periods of misery. But Lenin, Trotsky, and the others welcomed the struggle, not because they relished in human misery, but because as those days ticked by, they were laying the foundations of a much better world to come. As Trotsky proclaimed on June 4, 1918, our party is for civil war. Civil war has to be waged for grain. The Soviets are going into battle. When a fellow party member replied in jest, long live the civil war, Trotsky stated in all too deadly seriousness, yes, long live the civil war. Civil war for the sake of the children, the elderly, the workers, and the Red Army. Civil war in the name of direct and ruthless struggle against counter-revolution. In his statements around the same time frame, Lenin concurred, declaring that civil war was class war. The famines were a disaster, but it was something to be endured on the way to something else. Next week, I'm going to cover that something else and discuss the new society that the Bolsheviks worked to build up. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.